Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, Kylie. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, would you be able to talk about some self-care that you've done over the past week? Yeah, look, I've been kind of focused on just getting more sleep. I've been sort of noticing I'm really tired at the moment. Um, just I'm waking up a bit earlier than normal. Um, so, yeah, I've been kind of trying to get to bed somewhere between half an hour and an hour earlier than normal just so I can get that little bit of extra sleep. So if I do happen to wake up early, then it's kind of like, okay, I still had a, had a good night's sleep. Mm, sometimes in your life your body does need more sleep like it just it's going through something just requires more absolutely and I you know recently got um a new sort of watch that tracks your steps and it also tracks your sleep um and so I've been kind of you know looking at what's been sort of typical for me and it's like okay I definitely need a bit more sleep not only am I feeling tired but actually my tracker's telling me I'm not getting enough sleep so it's it's sort of been something that's on my um high priority priority list at the moment and it's always so nice when you actually get that sleep that you need oh it feels great doesn't it (laughs) That's the difference between a you know a good night's sleep and waking up feeling a bit more refreshed and a night when you haven't is yeah it's noticeable it is so on the topic of today we are talking about stress and eating so yep. what's the connection between stress and eating yeah, really good question. And look, stress is something that we all experience. You know, it's it's, it's a like shared human sort of experience. So everybody kind of knows what stress feels like. Um, and it does have lots of different impacts on, on eating. So, you know, stress um, or what we, well, I guess, you know, when we think about stress, we're sort of talking about situations that kind of cause a stress response in our body um, can actually change our normal patterns of eating. So for some people, they tend to actually eat more when they're stressed um, and it tends to sort of drive us to eat typically more sweet foods and fatty foods that are energy dense. We often tend to want to eat foods that we can acquire quickly. So, you know, um, things that are ready-made. And that's why I think sort of, you know, sometimes foods, fast foods are often consumed more when we're stressed because we simply just don't have the capacity to, you know, prepare a meal and, and, you know, cook it and and do that. Um, But for other people, um, they can often eat less um so it's sort of interesting that there's sort of a really really clear sort of individual difference in in sort of how we respond to stress in terms of some people eat more and some people eat less Mm, yeah definitely they're like also the physiological kind of responses to stress what are some examples of maybe some physiological stresses to the body yeah so physiological or physical stresses are things that actually cause like physical impacts on the body so it could be illness it could be injury um, it could be you know um, extreme cold um, sleep deprivation 
um, drug and alcohol um, withdrawal. Um, so there's a whole range of things that can be kind of physical stresses to the body. Mm, definitely. What about prolonged stress? What does prolonged stress do to the body? Yeah, so um, I guess our fight or flight system, which is one of the systems that is activated um, when we're stressed, um, and our fight or flight response is basically our sympathetic nervous system. And so when that's activated, it's sort of been designed, I guess, evolutionary in an evolutionary kind of way to respond to acute stressors. So things in our immediate environment that are kind of immediately like, you know, life-threatening and then kind of go away. So you think about it, you know, from an evol evolutionary perspective, our, you know, our um, ancestors were hunters and gatherers. So, you know, perhaps an acute stressor might be a predator. Um, so in that case, your body's got to very quickly kind of um, mobilise energy um, to allow you to, to respond effectively, which in that case would have been either to fight it off or to run away. Um, prolonged stress is sort of something that, um, you know, we're seeing more and more of as, as we've kind of developed. Um, so instead of something being an acute stressor, it's something that we experience for a much more prolonged period of time. Um, and so our bodies produce the same kind of hormonal responses. So things like adrenaline and norepinephrine and cortisol, all the things that kind of help our bodies to quickly respond to stress by increasing our heart rate, increasing our breath rate, releasing glucose from our liver. So we've got energy to respond. Those hormones are really helpful, but over time, they actually can be quite harmful if, if our stress response is on for a long time. Um, so, you know, it affects, um, you know, things like we have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, um, poorer mental health, um, it progresses, um, you know, diseases that we might already have. It makes us more at risk for both catching and responding to infectious disease. Um, so prolonged stress um, can be perhaps sometimes very detrimental to our physical and, and mental health. Hmm. What about the stress of undernutrition on the body? How can that impact us long-term? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and I always like to think of um, one of the sort of studies that has been conducted in this area that tells us a lot about the effect of undernutrition. Um, have you heard of the Minnesota um, experiment? Yeah. <laughs> so the Minnesota starvation experiment was um, a study done by a guy called Ansel Keys and colleagues, and it was conducted at the end of World War II. Um, so they knew that a lot of people coming back from the war would be underfed and undernourished and underweight, and they wanted to understand the effects of, of starvation, um, both during the period of starvation as well as refeeding. So what happens and how do we best help people to get back to optimal health? So they took a, a bunch of healthy young men um, and they basically monitored their food intake and their normal food intake for 12 weeks. Then they halved their energy that they were having for a period of 24 weeks. And then they kind of refed them in a study period anyway that lasted for another 12 weeks. But many of them actually were refeeding for up to two years after the experiment. And what they found was that in addition to losing about 25% of their body weight, which is really significant, and up to 40% of their muscle mass, it led to some really marked um, 
personality changes, cognition changes, changes to mood, changes to behaviour. Um, so, you know, for, for these young healthy men who did not have an eating disorder, many of them, whilst both in the starvation phase where they were eating half their calories and then afterwards became obsessed with food, eating calories, cooking, cookbooks, recipes, so, you know, these were, they weren't really interested in these things before the experiment, but during the experiment, they became really quite obsessed. Um, they, you know, noticed emotional changes, so an increase in anxiety and depression. Um, they noticed changes to their cognition. So, as I said, they became really kind of um, almost obsessed with food and eating, um, you know, and it spent a lot of their time thinking and talking about food and eating um, and behavioural changes. So how they interacted with food, for example, you know, they will cut up their food into really small pieces, smear it across their plates. Um, so some really kind of um, interesting starvation effects that for can look very similar to what we see um, in our in our patients with with anorexia nervosa, but actually these are the effects of starvation. Mm -hmm. um, so it has some really significant impact. Mm, it is a really interesting experiment, and it does demonstrate and show a lot. Yeah, it does, and you know, totally unethical wouldn't be done today. <laughs> but some of these studies um, are really informative and, and sort of, you know, has have has helped us a lot in terms of our understanding of, of starvation, um, both in and people who are who are healthy, but also in understanding how that overlaps with with um, anorexia nervosa. Definitely. So then, what about the stress response? What is the stress response? Yeah, so it's kind of like an inbuilt kind of automatic biological response to things that are either physically stressful, like we talked talked about before, so injury and illness, um, so our bodies respond to that, as well as things that we might see to be psychologically stressful, so things that threaten or potentially pose harm to our well-being. So it's really inbuilt, it's automatic, um, you know, and it tends to... Um, I guess, have two parts to it. So one part is sort of um, the sympathetic nervous system that I talked about before, and the other is something called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access or HPA access, which acts to release cortisol, which is one of the other major stress hormones. Um, so when we talk about this sort of stress response, we often know of it colloquially as our fight or flight response because it has these kind of characteristic behavioral responses um, so um, sometimes it's called to as referred to sorry as the defense cascade so when it's activated we kind of go through this series of steps and not everybody goes through all of them they might only just go to the first step or the second step sometimes you might even see it looks like people jump over steps because it happens so quickly but the first sort of step in the cascade is actually kind of being alert you know, sort of once we sort of think there's a threat, was actually sort of a level of just trying to be quite alert. And then we kind of have this kind of sort of freeze response, which is kind of the watch and see, like I'm, I'm just sort of pausing to kind of take in information to see what to do, followed by an active behavioural stage, which is the fight or flight response. So we're either going to fight off our attacker um, or we're going to, to run away. 
And then there's the kind of what they sometimes called, and it's got some different names, but I'm just going to talk to, to refer to it as kind of almost like the collapse. So where we're so it's sort of um, kind of a bit out of it. Um, this is often where people experience dissociation and numbness. Um, and then there's complete overwhelm where people basically become unconscious. So that's all part of the sort of stress response. Um, internally, I guess, in terms of the physical sensations we can experience, you know, um, most people are familiar with um, their heart rate starting to increase, you know, beating quite rapidly, breathing um, more, more shallowly and quickly. Um, we might have that real sudden surge of adrenaline and cortisol. So we're, we're, perhaps we're feeling a bit shaky, a bit trembly. We might flush because, you know, we're getting all that oxygenated blood to our muscles, to, to um, our skin, so we can sort of thermoregulate correctly. So there's all sorts of really strong physical reactions. Um, and I'm sure anyone that's done a public speaking kind of task would be really familiar with a lot of these. Um, but that's, yeah, that's sort of in general terms, the stress response. So then are there any neuro neurobiological adaptations that might impact eating behaviour? Yeah, so I guess when we're stressed and our sympathetic nervous system is activated, um, basically um, our parallel sort of system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is also called the rest and digest system, it's kind of dampened or off. Okay, so when we're in the sympathetic stage, kind of our digestion um, is sort of not turned off, but it's dampened. Um, so sometimes we can get that sort of sensation of butterflies in our stomach that sort of comes from that dampening. Um, and so when we eventually start to eat after we've been stressed, we're basically back in our rest and digest mode. Um, so our body starts to slow down and our heart rate and our respiration rate slows down. And that actually tends to feel good. Like it feels quite nice when we relax. Um, and so when we're eating and that's happening, it feels good. So often we want to continue to eat even when we're not hungry. Um, that's definitely one of the sort of, I guess, um, adaptations that impacts behavior. Um, the other sort of adaptation that impacts behavior is that, you know, when we, when we are in our sort of stress response, we release cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And that is often associated with an increased desire to consume foods that make our brains release dopamines. And dopamine is basically our feel-good kind of hormone. Um, so when we have high cortisol levels, we often want to eat foods that are high in sugar and high in fat because they actually promote that dopamine response. So it feels good. So often when we're stressed, we look for that kind of energy dense sweet fatty foods that release dopamine and we feel a little bit better mm. so then what about emotional stresses how can they impact eating behavior yeah so um research has shown that um for people with an eating disorder they often tend to experience more adversity and more stress throughout their lifetime. So there's a, there is a sort of relationship between stress and the development of disordered eating. So psychological stresses can include, you know, things like trauma, maltreatment, you know, loss of an important relationship, stresses, you know, amongst peers and friends, you know, things like bullying and teasing, um, sexual trauma, um, so those are all sorts of things that can, I guess, cause emotional stress. Um, so we're talking about, you know, feeling fearful, scared, anxious, sad, depressed, lonely, 
um, shameful, um, all of those things can contribute to having a stress response um, and they are related to developing eating disorders for some people. Mm. So what about how might stress increase the likelihood of compulsive eating behaviour? Yeah, so, you know, as I was saying before, like, if we're sort of searching out for, you know, really tasty, sweet, fatty foods because they actually tend to make us feel better, they tend to make us feel more relaxed, um, we can kind of start to learn that, you know, when I eat certain foods, I tend to feel better. Um, and it may not necessarily be something we we sort of explicitly know. It can sometimes be quite unconscious, um, but we can kind of start to learn that when I feel really stressed or upset, then, you know, eating certain foods tends to make me feel better and calm me down. Um, and so often when we start to, to eat, we feel better. So we want to keep eating and that can become quite compulsive if it becomes um, a way of coping with stress and emotion. And we kind of use that more than we use other kind of coping strategies. Yeah, but then the eating of the food might become stressful in itself, the compulsive eating. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sometimes we, we can see that, can't we, that, you know, yes, I feel temporarily better because, you know, I've eaten something that's kind of calmed me down, but then I'm starting to get really stressed about the fact that I have that food or that I'm gaining some weight or that I could gain weight. And so that can be really um, really stressful too um, and then we might do other things so you know that's sometimes why some people engage in purging behaviors or exercise behaviors to then sort of deal with the the stress that comes up from that and we kind of know from research that you know um, before binges people often feel more stressed and then it dampens a little bit afterwards but then it increases again um, so you can get really stuck in a, in a really vicious cycle. Mm, definitely what about those who are fearful of foods how can that become stressful yeah well I guess you know um sort of labeling foods as good or bad and often good foods feel safe to eat um there's not as much sort of anxiety around eating them whereas bad foods are often presumed to to sort of not be good for us often because they might you know not be healthy for us or because they might lead to weight gain and so if we kind of create this sort of good and bad dichotomy um that can sort of set up kind of you know um, if we ever have anything of that bad food you know even if it's only a small piece of chocolate or a bite or something then it can kind of feel like oh gosh I've ruined it I've eaten something really bad um really can increase anxiety um and people kind of go oh, well I've already had it stuff it I might as well keep going um and so that can be can often trigger binge eating um, and then you know in turn it for some people can trigger purging I've, I've eaten all that food I feel really really anxious I've got to deal with it in some way even though purging doesn't actually um, help from a sort of um, addressing the calories perspective sometimes people just feel better afterwards thinking that it might kind of help them you know because they have, they're kind of trying to mitigate the effect of the binge um, so that's sort of I think one of the ways you know that feed foods um, can you know can kind of make us feel really stressed. I mean, all of those responses definitely respond around stress and a stressful yeah. experience of going from all those things, it would be very, very hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in treatment, I guess, you know, what 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 the aim is is for 
sort of to help people to start to approach some of those feed foods, typically from looking at some foods that aren't quite as scary to eat, aren't quite as fearful, it's getting people to, to sort of have the experience of eating those foods and learning that, okay, I got through that, I could cope with that and learning what happens when I've had it. You know, a lot of people fear the consequences of having that. I might gain weight or it might just go straight to my stomach. And so having the experience of eating a food that they're a bit scary, scared of um, and learning that, yeah, okay, I got really kind of anxious about that, but I was able to cope with it. And then learning, oh, actually that thing I was really worried about happening didn't necessarily happen is a really big goal in treatment. So we really try and help clients to kind of slowly address foods that are a little bit fearful of going all the way through to things that they're really, really scared of eating um, and learning that actually, um, you know, what we're fearing about them very rarely tends to come true. And coming back to address the actual stress and the thoughts as well. Yeah, and, and recognising that we can actually manage stress in different ways, um, food and eating and control over food and eating are not the only ways and not always the most helpful ways to, to manage stress, that we actually have better strategies. And so part of that relearning that association with those foods that are scary and becoming having a, a better relationship with them is also learning different ways to cope with stress and anxiety. Definitely. So then how can stress impact hunger and fullness cues? Yeah, um, good, good question. Um, look, I, I think when you think about stress, I guess we're often in a situation where we're noticing either something's going on that we're feeling is really stressful or we're, we're aware of things going on in our bodies that tell us that we're really stressed. Um, and so often we can be quite preoccupied with those things, either the thing that's causing us stress. So imagine you've got an assignment due for uni or school tomorrow and you haven't started it. Um, so often our focus can then just be on, okay, I've got 10 hours. I'm going to have to work that whole time. Then people really focus on the thing that's causing them stress or they might be really caught up in the emotional or sort of physical bodily experience of that stress. And all of that, I guess, in some way either helps to either distract us from feeling hungry. So we're just sort of not paying attention to it. We can get really caught up in sort of dealing with the issue. Um, or and, and that can mean that sometimes we get overly hungry. So when we do eventually eat, sometimes we eat too much. And, and that can mean that we can go past our fullness cues. So stress can kind of, I guess, make it harder for us to tune into our hunger cues and also helps us to override our satiety or fullness cues um, at times because we're just not paying as much attention or we might have gotten too hungry because we weren't focusing on it and paying attention to it. And as you were kind of talking about like doing assignments and schoolwork, how and why is moderate stress important and how can moderate stress actually be good for you? Yeah, so, um, you know, as I was saying before, when our sort of sympathetic nervous system is activated, it goes through a series of steps. I call it the defence cascade. And the first one of those is actually being alert. Um, so a little bit of stress actually kind of makes us more alert. Um, we're more focused. So, you know, say you've got an assignment due tomorrow and it matters. Um, so often, you know, when we're a little bit stressed, because, oh, gosh, I really want to do well, we're more motivated. Um, we've got a goal that we're working towards. Um, 
So stress is often thought of, you might have heard of the Yerkes-Dodson law, the inverted U that you sometimes see when people talk about the relationship between stress and performance. Well, anyway, it kind of, I guess, illustrates quite nicely the effect, effect of just having some stress actually improves performance. So as you kind of, you think about an upside down U, as we're sort of climbing up the U on the left-hand side, you know, as our, our sort of stress is increasing at the sort of the top of the U, that's where performance is optimized. So we've got some stress and it's optimizing our performance. But as stress continues to increase, so as we're going down the other side of the U, so getting more and more stressed, actually our performance drops off because now we're overly stressed and we're not able to cope with actually how we're feeling. So imagine you've procrastinated, it's now um, 7 a.m. and the assignment's due 8 a.m. and you haven't written a word. Sometimes we can just feel like paralyzed, like we don't even know where to start. You know, thoughts are racing. We might be either really, really emotionally distressed, crying and, and kind of feeling really agitated, or we could be kind of a bit numb and disconnected. Um, and they're both things that happen when we become overly stressed. Um, so a little bit of stress is good um, and it's it actually helps us to kind of perform when we need to, but getting too stressed can kind of be really overpowering. It does. It's good when you step out of your comfort zone to create like growth and actually, you know, complete the assignment and pass the assignment. But if you've, yeah, yeah. you've got too much stress and you've left an hour, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I like that idea of growth that, you know, in order to get better at anything there's a certain level of fear that we have in facing something either we're doing something new we're doing something more difficult um so that always creates you know some little bit of anxiety and facing that anxiety to get through to to achieve what you want as you said actually leads to growth um so it's actually really healthy and really normal to sort of have a mild stress response in in a lot of situations where we're going to improve we're going to get better um, we're pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone yes absolutely so then why does our perspective on stress also play a role in how it impacts us yeah so this is such a really good question so when we think about stress you know um, I guess we have the physical stress response so you know our heart rate increasing our breath rate increasing we have the sort of physical aspect we have the behavioral aspect the things we do in response to stress you know so some people might you know exercise a bit more some people might eat a bit more food there's things that we do in response to it and then we have the cognitive aspect you know and so when we think about um I guess our perspective I guess what we're talking about really is our, our perception of stress um, and so researchers have sort of talked about, you know, um, this cognitive appraisal of stress um, and kind of dividing it into, you know, a number of different parts. The first one is really, um, I guess, an assessment of whether this situation is stressful or threatening to me. So for some people, you know, for example, um, you know, you might be driving home in traffic and somebody cuts in on you. You know, some, for some people, that might just be a normal day in Sydney traffic. Nothing to see here. <laughs> for other people, that's like, ah, oh, someone nearly hit me. You know, oh, that's really stressful. That's really threatening. So that's kind of our primary appraisal. Is it threatening or not? And then we have a secondary appraisal process, which is really about 
can I cope with and can I respond to whatever is stressful for me? Um, so it might be, you know, in that same scenario in traffic, someone cuts in, it might be, I, you know, someone feeling like they're a really um, accomplished driver, they've been in lots of different situations, they're really alert to their surroundings. So, you know, I can kind of cope with, you know, um, drivers being a bit erratic, whereas someone else might not be very accomplished. They might be a nervous driver or a new driver and might be thinking, oh, I can't deal with this. This is really stressful. I've got to get off the road. Like I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be safe keeping driving. So kind of our perception of what is threatening is, is a really important process because humans are pretty much the only species on the planet who perceive things to be stressful and actually can get stressed by things that don't exist in the real world. Um, so perceived stress is a really powerful um, place to intervene and, and sort of being able to help people recognise that not every situation that might be perceived to be stressful is and that we have the, the tools and the resources to cope with things when um, we are in a really stressful situation. Does that make sense, Jessie? Definitely. No, that's amazing to put stress that way because it yeah, really does make a major difference, especially with like traumatic experiences, how some people may respond completely different to an experience. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that is down to, you know, um, previous experiences, both traumatic and otherwise, genetics, personality, Um you know, there's so many things that contribute to it. But, you know, when I think about the power of the brain, that we can train our brain to, to think differently, that leads to different actions, um, then we can, we, we, have a, we can play a really powerful role in being able to see situations that historically have been really stressful and kind of retraining our brain to go, no, that's okay. You know, I've, I've actually dealt with that before and I did it really well and I got through it. So I don't need to necessarily be so stressed in this same situation again. Yes, and the right supports can definitely help you just address oh, Absolutely. I think social support is a really big part in kind of also managing our stress response, you know. Um, I guess our relationships with others, getting comfort from others, getting support from others actually also helps to kind of you know, um, moderate or calm down our stress response. Yes, it definitely does. So then when can you, how can you notice how, when stress has become too much stress for our bodies, what are the symptoms? Yeah. So, um, I guess this is a, you know, a really helpful way to think about it. And often how I think about it is that when we're not stressed, we're kind of in like this, what they call a window or a zone of tolerance. So a place where we're able to kind of our comfort zone, I guess, where we're able to be um, responding appropriately to things and we're able to regulate our emotions. I often think we know when we're stressed, when we're kind of pushed outside that zone. Um, and we can kind of respond in ways that are either hyper aroused or hypo aroused. Um, so as we're pushed out, that's outside that window going above it means we're hyper aroused, going hyper aroused and going below it means we're hypo aroused. So some of the things that we see in hyper arousal are feeling really anxious, really overwhelmed, you know, being feeling and acting quite chaotically, having a lot of emotional outbursts, anger, irritability. 
Whereas when we're feeling hypo-aroused, um, so less aroused, we can often feel disconnected, numb, dissociated. We can have like flat or blunt affect where we're sort of not really having any kind of variation in our emotional experience. We can have memory loss. Um, so there are all sorts of things that kind of tell us that we've, we've become way too stressed. Um, you know, we might be sleeping less, our eating might have become chaotic, um, we might be having more fights and, and disagreements with people, things that normally wouldn't kind of phase you, you know, the little stuff is all of a sudden <laughs> we're becoming, you know, those things are starting to, you're noticing you're reacting to them. So they're all signs you're kind of um, getting outside of that window of tolerance. Yes, I can definitely relate to all of that when I changed schools in high school, especially when you're like your hormones, you're a teenager and moving schools and then the stress and everything, just fights and everything. Yep, I agree. And, you know, we all know what that feels like. It's it's a normal human thing. Um, and then we've just got to work out what works for us when we are super stressed. How do we get back in our window? You know, how do I go from feeling like I'm overwhelmed and, and you know, really emotionally reactive or really numb? How do I kind of notice that? And then what do I need to do to kind of get me back in my, my window or my zone of tolerance? Mm. And it is important to go through those types of changes too, because you might find over time you may like change and it may not be so hard, but the yeah. times that you do it at first when you're younger, it's yeah. just, yeah. And I think that relates to, as we are talking about it before, the appraisal of stress. You know, if you've gone through a really tough time before and you've got through it, you know, it mightn't have been at all easy, but you've got through at the other side. Often we learn, you know, a lot about ourselves. We learn how we cope and then we can reflect back. The next time we come across some adversity, we kind of can reflect back and go, yeah, actually I've been through a really tough time before and, um, you know, I'm actually pretty gritty. You know, I'm pretty resilient. I know I can get through this again. Um, so I think that that prior experience for some people, depending on what it is, um, can can build kind of our confidence in, in, in being able to overcome different kinds of adversity. However, for other people who, you know, experience really significant adverse events and really traumatic events, um, they can go on to develop PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and that can actually kind of, um, you know, lead to kind of almost like hypervigilance and always being on and always kind of having a, a kind of on stress response. So, you know, previous stresses don't always prepare us in a good way. They can in some situations and other situations, they can kind of make us, um, you know, very likely to be really easily triggered um, by by similar sort of experiences or reminders. Um, so I think it kind of depends a bit, you know, um, as to what the, the kind of stress is. Can PTSD over time, if you work on it with a therapist, resolve the symptoms? How does yeah. that yeah. yeah, look, it can, absolutely. Um, you know, so... Um, you know, there are effective treatments for, for PTSD, um, so trauma-focused CBT, um, uh, EMDR. So there are a number of treatments, um, some of which can, can really effectively help people who've experienced a prior traumatic event um, to be able to have less of that, that stress response and resolve a lot of their symptoms. Um, kind of depends on to some extent on um, how complex the trauma was so you know there's sort of a, a not new but a relatively new diagnosis called complex 
PTSD, which recognises that um, early and ongoing stressors um, actually have really quite significant impact, not just on sort of our future stress response, but on our relationships, on our identity. Um, and so that can be can be more 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 tricky, but definitely can certainly um, improve with the right kind of treatment and the right kind of supports. Mm, so important to mention all of those as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a combination. We need like obviously good treatments, the right kind of therapists and having good rapport with them, but we also need really good supports in our in our lives, in you know, our community and close friends and family um, play a huge role in, in sort of um, that sort of security and safety that we need. Yeah. So then what can we implement throughout our routine to reduce the impact of accumulating too much stress? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good question and there's there's lots we can do, right? So from a physiological perspective, so we want to basically kind of turn back on our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest state. And there's lots we can do in that space. So the things that tend to be really effective activate our vagus nerve, which is sort of the main sort of neural pathway um, for our parasympathetic nervous system. It kind of starts from the bottom of our brain and literally links up with all the major bodily systems. So things that help us activate our nerve, our vagus nerve are things like controlled breathing. Um, so we know that if we can kind of control our breath rate, we can control our heart rate. And so if we're doing slow breathing, our heart rate tends to slow down and we go back into that rest and digest state. Um, there's a recent paper published that compared, I think it was controlled breathing. So they called it box breathing. So basically the standard box breathing is four breaths in, four breaths hold, four breaths out, four breaths hold. So it's kind of sort of thinking about it like a box. They compared box breathing to sighing. So sighing is sort of focusing on the exhale and not really focusing on the inhale. To hyperventilating, so really focusing on the inhale and not the exhale. And then meditation. And what they showed was sighing. So actually just a breath in and then a really long exhale, about twice the inhale duration, is the most effective in actually sort of um, reducing our sense of perceived stress as well as our stress response. So that's kind of really cool research. Um, and it doesn't need to be very long. And, you know, you can do a short practice every day and get the benefits of it. So sighing and breathing um, are really important. Um, we can do things like humming or singing, um, splashing or submerging our face in cold water having a hot drink or a really cold, icy drink, um, getting out in nature. Um, we know that even just looking at images of nature reduces our cortisol. Um, and mindfulness and grounding are things that help us get back into our zone of tolerance. So mindfulness is about really trying to do things that keep you in the present. So it could be as simple as just being mindful of your breath or mindful of things that you can see and hear outside, anything that kind of connects us to the present. And grounding is really about kind of connecting to the ground in a very literal sense. So it could be feeling, the, you know, the, the floor through your feet, you know, pushing down on the floor, 
you know, getting up, stomping. So this sort of sense of literally being kind of connected. And it could also be things like grounding statements that sort of link us to the here and now. So it's, you know, February the 13th, 2023. You know, that anything that was that might have been triggering me or upsetting me is in the past. This is the here and now. So there's things that we can do, you know, from that sort of physical perspective. Then there's a whole thing, type of stuff we can do sort of behaviourally that we know helps us to manage stress. So, you know, getting enough sleep um, is one that I'm working on at the moment. Um, eating regularly so we're just not running out of fuel. Um, regular exercise plays a really huge role in managing our stress response so you can imagine you're sitting at your desk trying to finish your assignment and you're pumped up full of cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine they're kind of um, hormones that really kind of potentiate us for action we want to do something you're sitting at your desk all day you know feeling really stressed you're actually going to feel really kind of antsy and on edge so going for regular exercise actually allows us to expend that energy that our stress response has kind of prepared us for. Um, so it's a really important way of managing stress. And then we've got all the cognitive stuff. You know, we can we can talk about things like coping statements. You know, you're okay. I know it's tough, but you got through tough things before. Having mottos, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, things like that. Um, you know, I think we undervalue the role of the cognitive element of managing stress, but it's it's a really important one because what we tell ourselves can sometimes become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we if we're saying it often, then we start to act it and it becomes true. And it can also be very individual as well, like socializing and going and having fun and just putting in breaks between work yeah. and changes everything yeah I love all that too I think they're really great you know sort of behavioral activities aren't they so breaking our day into chunks making sure we have breaks so we just give ourselves a mental time out you know hanging out with friends what a great thing to do from that so, sort of social connectedness thing it's distracting um yeah there's I think it's about working out you know, everyone's difference, working out what are your, you know, what are your coping strategies, what works best for you. And I think absolutely reaching out to family and friends, whether it's for some fun or it's for, you know, a more serious chat is is always going to be a really important part of stress management. Because mm, I think I found for me the best, like the best part that got me through my HSC when I did that was doing the social things and having that family time and those conversations and just having those little kind of breaks and doing the things still but also catering in the study to keep going yeah absolutely I still remember my HSC years we would study around you know our favorite I was a boarder at, I went to boarding school and we would study around our favorite tv show and so everyone would break because we all love watching this show and everyone would joke and there'd be a lot of silliness and it was just really good fun um, I think it was less about the TV show and more actually about just it was really fun. But I still have those memories and it definitely helped to manage stress. I think that's what made year 11 and 12 some of the best years as well, just the humour that people brought into the classes to kind of just keep everyone motivated and having like a good time while still focusing. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something about going through a stressful period with other people you know you're not alone um and you sort of look around and go oh everyone's actually thinking and feeling 
just like I am. Um, and there's something really reassuring in that, isn't there? Just knowing that you're not alone and that you're all in it together and, um, you know, everyone's finding their way to, to try and get through it the best they can. Um, and I, I love, I think humour is one of the best ways to, to get through anything stressful. You can have a laugh, like it immediately makes you feel less stressed. Yeah, it actually does. It does. Yeah. So then what about a relationship with food and stress? How can we moderate the relationship between stress and eating? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So, you know, um, I think for anyone, you know, irrespective of your history with disordered eating or an eating disorder, you know, just regular meals, you know, trying to eat, you know, um, things that we know make us feel good and that are good for us is important. So we don't get too hungry. You know, we don't let our energy levels drop too low. Um, you know, and I think for anyone who's, who's got an eating disorder or disordered eating or recovering from that, then, you know, actually really being very careful not to get too hungry. Um, so those regular meals become really important. Um, you know, if you're really, really stressed, just sticking to things that you feel comfortable eating to start with. You know, uh, when you're really stressed, sometimes facing feed foods can be just really, really challenging unless you've got lots and lots of social support around you. But I do think, you know, what we can do is to eat regularly, eat consistently, try and get as much of a variety of foods, trying to eat things that we enjoy as much as possible and that satisfy us. There's nothing worse than eating something when we're really stressed and we're eating it because we think we should versus it's actually what we want to eat, um, you know, so making sure you sort of um, recognise that there is like a, a self-care or self-soothe part to food. Um, you know, if you're having a, a really tough night, you know, sometimes sitting down to the salad you think you have is just not going to hit it as much as, you know, maybe it's the, the burger and fries that you really wanted. Um, so my advice would be to, to sort of lean into making sure you eat regularly, regularly and making sure you listen to what you actually want to eat um you know and 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 not getting let, letting hunger get too too strong and and, and build up too much mm, yeah definitely I know we've talked about it a lot but what are some self-care tools to reduce stress on the body yeah so I guess um you know I, I, we've talked I guess in quite a bit of detail about some of them but I think some of the key ones are reaching out to your supports um, I think letting people close to you know how you're going, what, what's, what's going on for you, communicating any needs that you have um, is going to be really important. I think we just don't simply function very well if we don't get enough sleep. Um, so kind of if you're really stressed and you're only kind of capable of thinking of a handful of things, and I think kind of making sure you're reaching out to close others, getting enough sleep, trying to get adequate adequate food um, is really important um, making sure you're well hydrated some of those really sort of core things I think are, are sort of foundational and trying to have a break whether it's walking outside you know getting some fresh air or just trying to switch off from whatever task it is that you're focused on just having breaks I think it gives you a chance to just mentally sort of um, refresh because your chance to get a little bit of perspective sometimes when we're really stressed we just can't see our way through it taking a break can sometimes give us a chance just to step back and just get a little bit more perspective um, so I'd say they'd be my, my sort of top self-care tips yes they are really great and also communicating if you're struggling or stressed around food if you're using food as a coping yeah. just communicating that 
I agree. I agree. And look, you know, for some people that's really scary, you know, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, I think that we don't realise how common it is that we are sort of stressed about food and eating and, and don't realise that a lot of people actually know what that feels like. Um, so, yeah, sharing it with others can kind of help normalise it and can also help just get the support around those tricky times around meals. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been phenomenal. <laughs> Thanks, Jessie. Nice to come back and, yeah, look forward to hearing it. Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.